0: to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their, reject, if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you... Though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith." Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this ministry, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. O the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things— to him be the glory forever. Amen.
1: Heather, thanks so much. That's a, that's a big undertaking. Really appreciate you so clearly and helpfully taking us through a big chapter there. Friends, it really has been just a delight to be here with you these last uh, few weeks. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for your... Your encouragements and your um, expressions of appreciation, I just want to remind you that as much as uh, I might have put effort into uh, preparing for our time together, uh, just be reminded that Carl does that uh, week in, week out and so please continue to encourage him as well as you sit under his faithful teaching. Um, Well, as we jump into Romans chapter 11, I just want to ask if there's someone in in your life that you find hard to imagine coming to faith in Jesus. I wonder if you know anyone like my friend. She'd been a passionate member at church, serving in a whole variety of ways. She'd encouraged others in their faith. She'd spoken really openly with non-Christians about Jesus. She had loads of friends at church and, and did this just a wonderful job of sort of mixing them all in with, with the friends in wider life, bringing them together at you know various different social events. She was really kind, thoughtful. And then things drifted. It was slowly, at first, uh, imperceptibly, but gradually her friends were having to check in when they noticed that she just wasn't at church again. Oh, work was demanding more of her, she'd say, you know, Life was busy, kind of full to overflowing. Social life and all kinds of things going on. And then it became harder and harder to keep in touch with her as she sort of stopped responding to invitations, was getting really slow, replying to messages. And then finally she put it plainly. "Um, I'm taking a break from Jesus. Church, Church isn't for me anymore. And now it seems, looking back, what? It seems that all is lost. So many relationships in tatters, choices that she can't undo. And I wonder if you know anyone like my friend. Truth be told, this sort of brief snapshot could describe a whole variety of people in my life. Not just one. And my heart aches for them. It's hard to know just how to reach out to them. It's hard to remain hopeful for them. I wonder if you have someone in your life that you think, gee, it's, it's just hard to picture them coming to faith in Jesus. Well, they're the kind of questions that Romans 11 speaks into. And, and I think we probably all realised as we've read through it here that it does it in a way that really challenges our intellect. This is a tough chapter to get our heads around. But I hope that we'll also see that it, it probes our hearts hard as well. I hope that we'll see that God has some really important things for us to understand with our heads so that we will also be shaped in our hearts in two really deep-seated attitudes that I think we can all so easily slip into, a pride and hopelessness. So we're going we're gonna to dive into this exercise of working our minds hard because that helps us to see how God is working our hearts hard as well. We've already prayed that God would hear, uh, help us to understand his word, but I just want to invite us to pray again, that he'd do, our, do his work in, in both head and hearts this morning. Let's pray. Loving Father, thank you for your word, which we have just read, through which you have spoken to us. And we pray now that you would, you would be helping us to think clearly, uh, wrestling with a big chapter, a tough chapter, uh, but more than just getting it with our heads. Please do your work by your spirit in our hearts to unravel our pride and to give hope where we might feel hopeless. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're following along in the uh, outline in the leaflet there, you'll see that we've kind of broken this into three very uneven sections uh, to try and work our way through here. And first, Paul introduces us to the idea of a remnant chosen by grace from verses 1 through 10. To get our heads around this, it's helpful to have a brief reminder of the context of what we're reading. Uh, essentially, you might recall that we get to the end of Romans chapter 8 with just Paul overflowing with the profound promises of God. He summed it up in 8 chapter 39 if you want to flick back a page or two, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Profound promise, incredible assurance for us and so then Paul turns to a whole series of questions that flow out of that and in particular, what about those who have rejected Jesus, especially from among his own people, the people of Israel? See, Paul asks this question with his own Jewish colleagues and friends and family in mind But it's also helpful for us to remember that that he's writing this to the church in Rome, which is made up of people from a whole variety of backgrounds, many of whom have come from a Jewish background. But on top of that, what we know about the early church generally, and Rome as well, is that some of their most heated opposition came from the local Jewish community. Rome, big global city then, as it is now, had a fairly sizable Jewish population. And the local church received some of their most heated opposition from that Jewish group, many of whom were their, their friends and family, former colleagues in life. And so questions in Romans 9 through 11 about the Jews who had rejected Jesus, weren't just questions about those who were outside the church, but so often they were questions about people who were opposed to the church and that was in one sense how Romans chapter 10 finished. We didn't focus in on it last week uh, with all that we were covering uh, across at that point. But just keeping your Bibles open, uh, you'll see at the end of chapter 10, this is kind of the, in a sense, the, the mindset that brought that line of thinking to a close. In chapter 10 verse 21, uh, Paul quotes from the Old Testament and the prophet Isaiah that, that God says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. In Romans 11, chapter 1, Paul keeps asking the questions I ask then, did God reject his people? And his answer is emphatic no, really upfront no, God hasn't stopped holding his hands out to them. And to really quickly sort of help us get our heads around what's going on here, as Paul makes his point, he gives four proofs that God is still holding out his hands to his obstinate people. First proof in verse 1, look at me, Paul says, like, I'm I a Jew and he saved me. So there's kind of evidence number one, but it's actually helpful for us to remember who Paul was. He was sort of a Jew of Jews, a, a zealous opponent of the church, seeking the execution of Christians. So, well, if God hasn't rejected Paul, then his mercy clearly still extends to the Jews. Moving right along to his second proof... From verses 2 to 4 of chapter 11, Paul says, Look at Elijah in the Old Testament, in the book of Kings. Elijah and others who remained faithful under persecution from fellow Israelites, kind of the, the nation of Israel wanting to turn their back on God, opposing the faithful prophet. And so, it's Paul saying, even there, we see that even though so many had rejected him, God had not turned away. He remained faithful to his promise to save a remnant, a group within Israel. Third proof, verse 5, he says, look around at you now. Even now, in this present time, you see people from Jewish backgrounds coming to church with you there in Rome. God hasn't abandoned his people. Now, there's a fair bit going on here and it actually starts to build a picture uh, for what's coming up. So I've had a, I've had a crack at sketching this up, right? Because It was hard for me to get my head around and and, and actually drawing it out helped me. So I thought maybe that's helpful for you. Doing it this way is a little bit quicker than putting it on the whiteboard. So here's a very ordinary box, a big blue box. That just represents all of humanity, all of us rejecting and ignoring God until God intervenes and he makes one promise, a series of promises, one key intervention when he makes a promise to Abraham. That promise, a bit hard to see there, green dot, should have chosen a different colour, That promise stands in the middle of humanity and sets up the root of, what follows on the next slide, what God will grow to be his kingdom. Now, just in case you're wondering, that's exactly what an olive tree looks like. Um, Uh, Gardening Australia would be very happy. And yet, as the people of Israel grew, so many of them paid less regard for the promise that stood as their root than they did to the idea of being a special people. So we can kind of, you know, draw a line down there and and Israel was so keen to recognise that that they're a special people distinct from all of the rest of the world, the, the Gentiles, such that in Elijah's time, even though ethnic Israel had so clearly turned away from God and his promises, well, yet even within that distinctive people group, God said to Elijah, no, there's 7,000, a remnant, a little, a little olive tree growing deeply rooted in the promises of God. So we're going to come back to that, uh, that, that picture in a little while, just to help see how this chapter builds on that idea. Because for now, from verses 7 to 10 of chapter 11, Paul continues with his fourth proof. And this gets really challenging to us, I think, because he says, what then, what the people of Israel so sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. And the point is that God has rejected most of Israel. He has rejected most of Israel. They were hardened against him. And yet he's maintained a remnant chosen by grace, as we read of in verse 5. And what might be most confronting about what Paul's saying here is that he shows from the Old Testament that God has even played a hand in their rejection of him. To those who turned their backs on him and blocked their ears to him, well, he's, he's blinded their eyes, he's stopped their ears. That's what we read there from verses 8 through 10. So the image back in chapter 9 which was pretty confronting for us then of, of Pharaoh in Egypt being hardened against God, that God can choose to have mercy on who would have mercy, the people of Israel and harden those whom he would harden, that's God's sovereign grace at work. That image now becomes even more confronting because even within the people of Israel, God's sovereign power is at work to harden and to have mercy. Now I don't don't know if you if you noticed it as we read through here, but kind of the sovereign power of God is just stamped all over these early paragraphs. In verse two, we read that the remnant they weren't a surprise to God. Oh, look, there's a few people faithful. No, they were foreknown to Him. But not just that He had a knowledge of what would happen; He shaped the future to cause it to happen. In verse 7 and verse 5, we see them described as as chosen ones. It's, it's the same idea, it's the same root word as the elect. And as we've just seen from verses 8 through 10, it's they were chosen by grace in contrast to others who were hardened. This has the sovereign grace of God stamped all over it, showing his great power and control. But this is a pretty challenging idea for most of us, I think, that God would choose to harden some while choosing others to receive his mercy. And yet Paul shows us that there's a purpose to it all. That's the next block, the much bigger block from verse 11 to 32. As he challenged the Romans to consider the kindness and the sternness of God, I think that sort of sits as, as the big idea of this block. It's a really complex chapter. There's so much to learn from it, so much to dig out from it, way more than we've got time to do now. And so, I'm going to kind of draw out a couple of things, just the highlights. I want to highlight one point of logic that helps us get it in our heads but then reflect on two key points of application that I think speaks really clearly to our hearts. So, the first key point of logic is actually summed up in verse 11. The verse that introduces this whole block. Read it with me again there. Again I ask, says Paul, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. See, at one one level, Paul's most basic point is that there is still hope that some from within Israel will be saved, that they've not fallen so far as to be beyond recovery. And that, verse 11, helps, helps sort of break it down for us so that we actually see it. So, I've put it up on the screen to see the three steps because this is actually what Paul then just riffs on for, for 20 verses. See, Paul's logic is that there is a logic to God and what he is doing, that because of their transgression... Well, because of their transgression, Israel's sinful rejection of God is not even outside of his sovereign control. In fact, it actually further enabled God's promises to be fulfilled. We're reminded, weren't we, of what God's promises to Israel were? uh, That there would be uh, land, people and blessing to them but also through them to all of the world. Well, that's step two of the logic, right? That because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now it's hard to be sure here because Paul doesn't unpack it for us in Romans 11 but I think that in the light of all of Romans, the ultimate transgression of Israel that he has on view here, the the transgression of Israel that enabled the inclusion of the Gentiles was the crucifixion of Jesus. As a nation, their rejection of the Messiah is what opened the door to the Gentiles, people like you and me, to be included in the people of God. That's amazing mercy. That's the sovereign hand of God at work. But even then, the salvation of the Gentiles isn't the final goal here because in His mercy to Israel, God's acted in such a way that the fulfilment of His promises to bless the whole world will actually be like a cattle prog, a a goad to, to some within Israel, to bring them back to repentance. That's kind of step three in his logic here in verse 11. Because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. God wanted Israel to be envious. I mean, most of the time we think of envy as something to be avoided, right? But it turns out that there can be a good kind of envy. God's purpose was to highlight his mercy to the Gentiles so that those under law would be envious of grace. Those striving for relationship with God on their own merit would be envious of the free gift of grace. And I think that's an envy we should continue to cultivate today. That grace would be so compelling... That whenever we, we're tempted to switch back into kind of got to earn my way with God or we see others thinking that way, that, that actually we turn and we see with great envy, with great desire how wonderful the mercy of God is. So back to our little diagram, in case it helps some of us. You see, we can kind of illustrate verse 11 in this way, that by means of Israel's rejection of Jesus with the cross there, Gentiles, remembering that's the blue half of the page, would be grafted into the people of God, which would generate envy within members of Israel such that they're looking on at the Gentiles with envy of their grace and would then be in turn grafted in as well. But there's one final step to Paul's logic and it's the reason why it's worth doing this hard work in our heads because I think this is the main point of the chapter. It's what drives the application deep into our hearts. See, Paul makes it clear in verse 13 that he's now speaking directly to the Gentiles. And I'm going to make a bold assumption that that's most of us, unless there are a few here with Jewish heritage. We don't have time to to work through all that he says to the Gentiles here. We're going to kind of take the, the highlight package of it, if you like. Paul speaks to the Gentiles who might look on at the Jews in one of two ways those up there who are Gentiles that might look on at some who are still within ethnic Israel either with pride or a sense of hopelessness. You know, a sense of pride in themselves or hopelessness in those that they look on at that would leave them either way resolving that, ah, oh, those guys, they're never going to be included in the people of God. Paul speaks against the Christian's assumption that, that such an unbeliever, someone like them, they could never be grafted in. I think if we pause to reflect on ourselves, even today, this stems from a sense of pride. Yeah, those people, they're so much worse than me. Or hopelessness. Too far gone. But either either way, we see that no one is beyond the scope of God's mercy. And Paul uses the illustration of of an olive tree to do it and that's why we've used the same illustration today. As he introduced it in verse 16, he says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. As we so helpfully saw illustrated for us, the root is the promise of God made throughout history, fulfilled ultimately in Jesus and the branches are his people, whether Jew or Gentile, brought in by God's mercy alone. Now, it is true that we can't actually do justice to Romans 11 without realising that the first and perhaps even the primary meaning of it is dealing with the question of Jews and Gentiles, such a, such a live, massive, really heartfelt issue at the time which might feel for us to be quite distant and removed, depending on whether you have any Jewish people in your life. It's helpful to see that even today, this demonstrates to us God's particular heart for the Jewish people, who are ethnically descendant from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But that's certainly not all it has to say. The application of this chapter remains profoundly relevant, even if you don't know a Jewish person anywhere. And the two points of application for all Christians. The mercy of God challenges us if we ever look on at others in pride or in hopelessness. Now how you get to the end of a footy game and, and the commentators, they pull it apart and they're like, we just want to, we just want to show you, you know, the, the kind of the counter attack that just, this is, this is how the crows finally got over the power this time around and, and, and they just pick out th- through the game, here's, you know, here's a bunch of different points where, see that player, he does it, like, and, we, and we see it again here and here in the, the 20 minute uh, mark of the third chapter, uh, the, the third quarter. Well, we're kind of doing that here because first let's turn to pride and see the highlight reel of how Paul threads that through here. From verse 13 to the end of the chapter, Paul just hammers home the point that none of us can look on at others who are not yet in the kingdom with any sense of pride in ourselves. His rebuke in verse 18 is just, it's blunt. You do not support the root but the root supports you. In verse 20, when, when someone could say, yeah, but you know, branches were broken off so that I could be granted in. Granted, he'll say, that might be true, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And and you stand by faith, do not be arrogant, but tremble. Last week we saw that none of us can presume upon a relationship with God. And so in verse 22, he challenges us, as the kids heard this morning, consider the kindness Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. And so we see that whether Jew or Gentile, none of us can look at those who are outside of Christ with any sense of self-righteous pride. And we need to know that that pride is no small matter. For to dwell on it, to nurture that pride before God and others, is actually to let go of his kindness, to use Paul's words here. See, true faith is continuing faith. True faith is humble faith. Recognising that I did not, nor I cannot, make it on my own. And the warning is real, we need to hear it. That if you do not continue his kindness by virtue of your pride, there is only one outcome, to be cut off. And so, in view of God's mercy, our pride is challenged. But secondly, the mercy of God challenges us if we ever look on at others with a sense of hopelessness. I wonder if that came through for you as we read this chapter, just, just all the way through. It'd be great to read it again, um, this afternoon perhaps, to, to see this coming through. That Paul's remarkable sense of optimism in light of the sovereign grace of God, as much as it seems despairing, Paul just looks on very optimistically. In verse 23, he states it most simply, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. He leaves the door wide open to the possibility that those who have even been most violently opposed to Christianity through faith in Jesus, they too can be welcomed home and so in verse 26, he can make the bold assertion, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles come in and in this way, all Israel will be saved. See, this is how God works. He saves people by moving people from unbelief to belief, which also means that no unbeliever is beyond the possibility of belief. Now, I don't think that Paul is saying here that every ethnic Israelite will be saved at some point in the future. It kind of cuts across the whole idea of Romans, right? That the whole thrust is that we're saved by faith in Jesus, not because of our ancestry. It's like what we saw in Romans chapter 9 verse 8, that it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So, Paul's point here in verse 26 is not how much of Israel will be saved... I think he takes it for granted that God will save all the ones that he's chosen, that remnant who respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. It's not so much about how much of Israel will be saved but rather that God will do it. He will save all that he will save in this way, the way that we saw from verse 11, that God chooses to enable some of those under law to see the beauty of grace poured out in Jesus Christ, even on the Gentiles, And so through that envy of God's mercy, they come to receive God's mercy. And so in verse 28, he sums it up. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved. That kind of sounds easy to say, but when we pause and remember that this is written to a church for whom actually some of their most heated opposition came from their Jewish neighbours... As far as the Gospel is concerned, they were enemies. They wanted to oppose the Gospel and those who were about spreading it. Well, for them, for those Christians, this is a really challenging reminder that among their persecutors, there would be people like Paul, who had been Saul, who sought to persecute Christians, who God had chosen for salvation. Paul grafted in. And I think the challenge to us is the same as for the Gentiles in Rome. No one is beyond the scope of the gospel. Neither the most outspoken critique of Christianity nor the most violent opponent of Christians is beyond hope. I don't know who sits next to you at the office, I don't know who gives you a hard time at the footy club. I don't know who that member of your family is, that just at every opportunity they poke and they niggle and they ridicule. But friends, remember that in light of God's sovereign grace, never give up hope that even they might be grafted in. I think even the final verse of this section, which which feels a bit tricky for us to get our heads around verse 32 as I've reflected on it I've thought wow this is just so humbling and so inspiring verse 32 for god has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all Now at first glance we might sort of think oh, what's he saying is he suddenly suddenly god's saving everyone no that's again cuts right across the whole point of romans that God saves those who trust in Jesus. Rather, this is describing the experience of every person who is saved. That we have all been disobedient. We are all recipients of the mercy of God, whether we're Jew or Gentile. Whether we seemed all stitched up and upright and and a a good law-abiding citizen or the most outrageous public sinner. No one is beyond God's mercy. And so how does this apply to us today? Well, it's very simple. Don't give up hope for those who seem hardened against the gospel, either through their apathy, just a lack of interest, or their opposition. I mean, speaking personally, if my evangelism rested on my ability, my ability to convince people of the Gospel, I'd be left feeling hopelessly inadequate for the task. If my prayers for my loved ones, even for the friends who I sort of gave you a snapshot about earlier, if my prayers for them rested on some indication, some glimmer of hope, a little green shoot here, honestly, for so many, I'd have no reason for hope. But instead, it's my confidence in the sovereign grace of God that he is in control to exercise his mercy. Well, that's what gives me hope to speak to my neighbours, to pray for those who don't yet know Jesus in my family because I can be confident that if he calls them, they will come home. And friends, that's why each of you has got a little olive branch. The wild olive trees that grow like weeds up in the Adelaide Hills, they've been thinned out very slightly, there's plenty more. I hope that this can serve in just a little tangible way. I know some of us find it helpful to have something physical, something to take home with us, to, to remind us of two ways that God's been working on our hearts today. It's a reminder not to be proud because we're all like this twig. If we're cut off from the life-giving roots of God's promises and yet we did nothing to graft ourselves into his family. It was all of God's mercy so you might want to stick this on the fridge or, or, or stick it on your bedside table to remind you to be humble. But it's also a reminder not to feel hopeless, right? That as you look on at those in your life who seem to be furthest from the Gospel, hardened to Jesus, that you would look on at this and remember that no one is beyond the mercy of God. Just think, before his conversion, the Apostle Paul he would have looked like the most unlikely candidate to have come in and sat down with us here at church. He hated Jesus, he hated Christians and yet God called him home. So perhaps this twig can be a reminder to you to, to pray for and to speak with all kinds of people in your life who don't know Jesus, however far from him they might seem. And friends, we're going to finish in the same way that Paul's finished. I think his head was spinning as he got to the end of this chapter, trying to get his mind about the things that he's just written about, that we've been trying to get our head around too. This is the kind of the glory of the infinite God, who we actually struggle to get our finite minds around, that we get to the end of chapter 11 and go, still not sure if I get it all. But you know what? What I do see the God that I do meet in these pages, He is clearly worthy of praise. And I hope that these are kind of words that we can reflect on in the week to come. I've got them on the screen so that we can read them again together and then we'll close in prayer. We're going to do question time later like we've done before. Feel free to send them through. But I hope at this point we can just pause and reflect on the glory of this great God. As Paul said, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counsellor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray, and then I think we're going to sing. Loving Heavenly Father, you have worked on our heads because this is hard for us to grasp, to get our finite minds around your infinite glory. And yet we thank you that even those glimpses that we have seen, they move us to praise because we see the glory of your mercy, that remind us that it is only by your mercy that any of us are grafted into your promises. And because of your mercy, we know that no one is beyond hope. Lord God, as we are about to sing, thank you that you are mighty to save. You have done that for us and you promised that you would do it for many more. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Robin. Yes, some great questions. Loving your questions, guys. Just um, as, a, as a brief heads up, I know some have sent... There's a bunch that have come through and we're just not going to have time for them all. We want to care for those looking after the kids in particular that we don't run too long. Um, I think I'm going to spend most of the time on what is, in a sense, the obvious question uh, that, that perhaps I left unanswered um, in the course of the sermon. Uh, and I'll, I think it's helpful if I just read the question as it was sent in. Uh, is this passage saying you can lose your salvation? do you think Christians can lose their salvation? Um, and I think it's the obvious question because we have here a pretty stern warning uh, of um, the idea of being cut off. Uh, verse 21 that we read there, if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you. Verse 22 Um Consider the sternness and kindness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. That's a stern warning. And yet, in simple answer to the question, do you think Christians can lose their salvation? No. Because God is clear that those He has chosen, and we we read that wonderful series in in Romans chapter 8, that those uh, God... For knew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Apostle Paul is so convinced that it's a done deal that he puts it all in the past tense. This is this is our present lived experience. We're looking forward to being glorified with the Lord Jesus when he returns. And yet it's, it's a done deal. When God makes his call, when he makes his choice, his sovereign grace is such that... <coughs> It can't be opposed. Can Christians lose their salvation? No. As Jesus put it, when he described himself as the good shepherd, he he contrasted himself with, with the hired hand, the one that would run away, the one that actually didn't hold on to his sheep but of himself. He says, my sheep, listen to my voice. This is reading from John chapter 10. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I think that's a wonderful image of assurance. If you have faith in Jesus, then you are held by two big hands. Jesus' hand, his Father's hand. He holds you tight. And yet we've got this profound warning here, right? You know, beware, lest you be cut off. I actually think that's how God holds us tight by reminding us of his mercy. The warnings are real that like, you know, a fence on a cliff, don't fall, don't don't get too close to the edge of the cliff, you'll fall off and die. What what stops you falling off the cliff? How are you held back safely so that you don't die? There's there's a warning sign there. We've in the city um in Trinity Church Adelaide, we've been working through the book of Hebrews, I think alongside Romans. It's kind of one of those brain-straining yet really heartwarming books and it is just repeatedly Uh, coming across warnings against walking away, turning your back, hardening your heart and I think that's how God holds us. That is how he prevents the Christian from losing their faith, that if we truly believe that the Lord Jesus died for us and rose for our salvation then the warnings are real to us. I don't want anything to do with that cliff, I'm going to stand here in Jesus. So there's great assurance and yet there is real warning that in our experience, we make choices. Am I going to pursue that that dodgy business deal? And Am I, am I going to pursue that adulterous relationship? Am I going to entertain that thought that God doesn't really care for me, love me? Am I going to step closer to the cliff? Hear the warning. Don't play with fire. And ultimately, don't fall into that trap of pride that says, actually, I, I can make it on my own mercy of God, whatever, I'm doing okay. That's the warning that sits for us here in Romans 11 that God holds us fast by reminding us of his mercy and grace. Um, If you want to chat more on that because I appreciate that for many of us that's uh, at times in our own life a really an unsettling prospect um, and even as we look on at others uh, a disconcerting one then I'd love to chat more. I think there's a couple of other questions here that sort of relate to that idea of looking on at those that seem to have walked away and I think let's let's actually follow um, Paul's example here in Romans where it's evident that he doesn't know, oh yeah, you know, Barney from down on 4th Street, uh, he's not a Christian yet but I'm pretty sure he's one of the chosen so I'll speak to Barney but, you know, Julie, his neighbour, you yeah, know, pretty sure she's not in so won't bother with her... Uh, we don't know the electing purposes of God, you know, who's He chosen and who hasn't. Uh, if someone's been sitting in the chairs at church and then life gets busy and they walk away, like the friends I described, were they ever really gripped by the grace of God? That's a real question for me as I look on at some of my dear friends. I think, did they ever really get it? I don't know. But I do know the mercy of God and His great kindness to us that I can trust that when he calls, they'll come home. So I want to keep, I want to keep speaking and praying. Now, th- that doesn't cover off all of the questions that have, that have come in here. Um, if you want to hit me up, then I'd love to keep chatting, but I'll hand over to Robin.